The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. AT&T's huge victory over President Trump's Department of Justice and the trouble down under with Australian banks. These are the topics we'll be discussing on this week's edition of The Views Room, a weekly conversation among Breaking Views columnists about the ups and downs of the world of finance. I'm Jennifer Sabah. So first, we're going to talk about AT&T and its victory. And on the line with me is DC columnist Gina Chan. Gina, let's just set this up. Uh, yesterday, um, the uh, judge came down with his decision, and it was it was a whopping decision. Yeah, it was pretty major. I mean, even if the deal got approved, it was expected it would come with conditions such as uh, forcing divestitures of Turner or other assets. Um, but the judge approved it free and clear, uh, no conditions at all, and it was a huge win for AT&T and a big um, slap in the face for the Justice Department. So AT&T in October 2016, it was almost two years ago, um, said that they wanted to buy Time Warner for $85 billion. And um, they've been, you know, kind of trucking along ever since, and they got caught up in this trial. Um, but something else that really jumped out at me is that the judge basically said to the DOJ, like, do not, please don't do a stay. That would be like really bad. Try, don't, don't put a pause on this deal because they're trying to close this next week. I mean, which seemed like an added (laughs) postscript, I think, to the whole, to the whole thing. Yeah, it just shows how much uh, District Court Judge Richard Leon thought uh, the DOJ was wrong in bringing this case. I mean, he's basically telling them to not appeal, which is obviously their prerogative, but saying, if you do, you'll probably lose again. And so you're better off just, you know, going away and sort of licking your wounds and trying again on, on another day with a different deal. Well, and and this is something I I know we've discussed this, too, because I feel like the DOJ, I mean, had some sort of inkling and was kind of going in the right direction because this is considered a vertical merger. And vertical mergers have just been humming along for, has it been almost 40 years now? And just to be clear, a vertical merger is basically two companies that don't really have any sort of overlapping businesses. In this case, AT&T is a, a mobile company and Time Warner, they have stuff like Game of Thrones and CNN. Um, so, but I do think directionally the DOJ um, was kind of onto something. W- what do you think, Gina? I mean, do, do you think that this needs to be reined in? Yeah, no, the, uh, the judge in the case um, was relying on very sort of old school um, case law and precedent when looking at antitrust law, which is basically looking at consumer harm and um, whether it substantially reduces competition, which is a very tough argument to make when it comes to vertical mergers because you're not actually eliminating a competitor and you're not creating more concentration in a market. So the legal burden was very high for the Justice Department. But as you say, I mean, I think they were a bit more forward looking in terms of, you know, how all of these changes in the media and tech landscape are creating different winners and losers and how that affects consumers is actually something that should be looked at as opposed to just sort of, you know, the old ways of looking at antitrust law. Yeah, because in essence, I don't think anybody really knows what the media landscape is going to look like maybe even five years from now. And and I put AT&T in that bucket too. Like I don't, I, I'm not quite sure their uh, prerogative for, for buying Time Warner 
is justified or really even makes sense. Um, it, to me, it just seems like they're getting bigger just to get bigger. And, um, you know, and again, because they're they're trying to take on Facebook and Google, although, again, it's kind of unclear if they can do that with digital advertising, why they need Time Warner content. Um, and, you know, meanwhile, you have like Netflix out there who's going gangbusters. And it's just it's just not clear what this landscape is going to look like. And um, so you, you would think you'd want tools that are a little more flexible to be able to address this down the road. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, who knows what other deals will be in the works now that uh, the AT&T deal got approved. But as you say, you know, given um, AT&T's experience in this page, which yeah. is basically none. Um, right, you know, no, no experience. Yeah, trying to figure that out. But everyone is um, sort of regrouping and um, seeing Facebook and Google as the big behemoths and in terms of advertising and how they can get ahead of that, which, yeah, I think does require a rethink in antitrust law because now more of these deals are going to be happening and it looks like DOJ will probably be too scared to block it or challenge it in some way. And so what does that mean um, for consumers and competition and, you know, who owns the pipes and who has the real power in the marketplace? So let's uh, before I let you go, let's let's talk about the DOJ. Where do they go from here? Is this basically uh, a free pass for anybody who's looking to merge? Um, or, or do you think that they are going to challenge um, maybe some future deals? I mean, how, how do you view this? Yeah, no, the market seems to think that um, it's going to be a free-for-all. I mean, we're seeing, you know, Sprint and T-Mobile, which are also in a proposed tie-up. Their share is going up today in reaction to the AT&T deal. So people definitely seem to think that, you know, this really opens the door to a lot of other uh, M&A. But if you actually read the judge's opinion, he was very specific in how he sees vertical mergers versus horizontal ones, and that horizontal ones are a much easier case for the government to make. There is a clear path in showing how concentration will increase and how a competitor uh, will be eliminated from the market uh, in those deals, which is, you know, the definition of what will happen with uh, Sprint and Timo, um, that those kinds of deals will still be really tough. And justice with egg on their face is going to be looking for a clear win that shows that they can regroup from this and and still hold a victory. Now, you know, AT&T becoming bigger with Time Warner is obviously going to help Sprint Timo argue about their competitive needs, but um, but still the greater concentration uh, in the market is going to be an issue for them. Okay. Well, we'll be watching this closely. Gina, thanks again for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks. Next up is my colleague in Asia, Quentin Webb. Now, moving on to Australia, which might at the moment be perhaps the least comfortable place on the planet for bankers. There have been a string of scandals and a new bombshell has emerged with criminal charges laid against a couple of banks and several individuals over a 2015 sale of shares in ANZ, one of the country's leading banks. I'm joined by Clara Ferrara Marquez in Singapore to talk us through what's going on Hi, Clara. What exactly has happened here? This seems to have taken the entire market by surprise. That's right. Well, there's been a very turbulent time for the banks in Australia. Money laundering charges, the Royal Commission into banking practices. 
But this is probably the most surprising element. Um, what's happened here is it was a share sale, as you said, by Australian New Zealand Banking Group back in 2015. And it, the underwriters, in this case City, Deutsche Bank, um, were left with shares that were unsold. And the case hinges on how those shares were then disposed into the market. The antitrust authority, taking an extremely literal interpretation, is saying that they colluded, limited the supply of shares, um, and uh, broke the law, essentially. The banks, however, are saying this is really standard practice, and we were serving our client. Everyone involved says they will defend themselves against the charges. And the charges here are pretty severe, right? I mean, in fact, we've seen very few criminal prosecutions of senior bankers, and yet... In this case, we're looking at 10-year sentences, perhaps, were there convictions for the former heads or current heads of capital markets and heads of the bank for Citi and for Deutsche Bank and the treasurer of ANZ. Why such severe penalties, do you think? Well, um, the ACCC, the Antitrust Authority, has been extremely tough. And let's be clear, just in a, in a global context, these are not particularly tough cartel laws, the 10-year jail sentence in particular, exists in other places. Having said that, the impact is, is incredible. This is a very tight-knit investment banking community, and the people named here are very senior figures, one of whom is now retired. Um, so the impact is being you know, felt very widely. Um, the banks themselves feel that if there was to be a change in how um, underwriting syndicates work, they should really, that should really have been conveyed to them through guidance, perhaps, in other ways, the ACCC, however, the Antitrust Authority, sees it, as I say, in a very literal way. You broke the law, you limited the supply of shares, and we will come down extremely hard um, to set a standard. It doesn't matter that in this case it was shares rather than cars or consumer goods of any other sort. And you argue, in fact, in the recent piece you wrote for Breaking Views, that it is a case of using a sledgehammer to crack a nut. In fact, effectively, you're saying you think this is disproportionate. Well, we don't know the full extent of the charges. They haven't been made public. The banks will appear and the bankers will appear in court in, in July. And at that point, we will know. And clearly, the ACCC has handed the case to the prosecutors. They feel they have a very strong hand. At the moment, from what we see on the outside, it does look a little aggressive, to say the least, I think, especially given how these practices, how underwriting practices go on across the globe. The question then becomes, do other people follow suit? Do other people follow what Australia has done here? That, of course, is a, a very big um, question for, for bankers globally. So this could well be a case that's followed closely in other capitals as well. So you're saying effectively it's a bit like, I think as you argue in your previous article, a bit like LIBOR in that it might be a practice that used to be viewed as unremarkable, you know, sort of setting interest rates a bit closer to where you'd like them to be than where they might objectively be, um, and then suddenly a regulator flips the switch and it becomes something a lot more problematic. Absolutely. It's like the emperor's new clothes. Suddenly, everyone's in the wrong spot. I mean, it really is too soon to say there does seem to be a, a bit of a, a smoking gun here. The Australian Financial Review has reported that the prosecutors have a, a videoed uh, conference call, or rather a video conference that was recorded at the time. Um, so there may be evidence there that shows behaviour that went above and beyond. We don't know yet. But certainly from what we see, there's a lot here that other prosecutors and other antitrust authorities will be watching very carefully. And yet, on the other hand, you know, if I was a 
corporate client, I'd asked a bank to sell some shares on my behalf, I would hope that they would be careful in the way they disposed of any leftover shares. I wouldn't want them all dumped on the market in one fell swoop, disrupting the price of my stock. That sounds to me a bit more like kind of good client service than it does uh, market you know, market manipulation or underhanded kind of colluding to restrict supply? I mean, that's right. And that's that's obviously what the banks will argue. There's also the the issue that this was a, a pretty large um, portion of unsold shares. And there's a separate case um, around the disclosure aspect. Should they have disclosed more? Um, but in the grand scheme of things, in terms of ANZ's float, it, it's not really a meaningful sum. Again, in the eyes of the antitrust authority, that doesn't matter. They still um, can be used, and obviously because they have very strong evidence, or they believe they do, um, they can use this to set set, um, the standard. So I think a lot of eyes will be focused on what happens in Australia in the coming weeks in this case. Clara, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank all my guests, Gina Chan, Quentin Webb, and Clara Fiera Marquez. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio, Freddie Joyner, and Ben Kellerman. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.